So um, if you've got a Bible, do, do turn back to Luke chapter 19 um, and uh, page uh, 1054, uh, in my Bible at least, and it might be in yours, who knows. So um, that, that is um, Luke chapter 19, beginning at verse 28. So let me pray. Father, thank you so much for this time to look at your words, and we pray that you'd speak to us by your Holy Spirit so that we know you better this morning. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, last summer, the Queen's private protection officer told of how one day on the Balmoral Estate in Scotland, a group of American tourists bumped into the Queen and started talking to her. Now, maybe because she was dressed in tweeds and a headscarf, the tourists failed to recognise her. They asked her if she lived nearby, which she said she did. Then they asked her if she'd ever met the Queen. And maybe with a twinkle in her eye, the Queen replied, no, but this policeman has. The tourists then continued on their way, completely unaware of what had just happened. Now, the gospel accounts of Jesus' life are in many ways a story of a monarch, a king, who's not recognised by those he meets. People consistently fail to grasp who he is. And actually, it's no different today, is it? For many people in the world, Jesus gets confused with Santa Claus at Christmas. He gets completely left out of Easter. Some would question whether he even existed, despite the overwhelming historical evidence that proves that he did. He might be called a good teacher or a prophet, but few would think to refer to him as a king. And even among Christians, we say Jesus is Lord, we sing he's the king of kings. But what do we mean? What does it mean to have a king who we can't see, who we haven't met physically and personally in the flesh? And and what kind of king is he? Is he a king we can gladly trust and submit to through all the ups and downs of life, and especially when things are tough and challenging? He says he's the king, we might say, but I don't see much evidence of that when my life is falling apart. Well, it's Palm Sunday, and this account in Luke's Gospel of Jesus entering Jerusalem is one of the traditional readings for Palm Sunday. We're going to see this morning that These verses are all about the kind of thing we've been thinking about. What kind of king Jesus is and what it means to recognise him as king. And in these verses we see Jesus is a sovereign king and he's a saving king and he's a dividing king. He's a sovereign king, saving king and a dividing king. So first from verses 28 to 34, he is a sovereign king. The account of Jesus entering Jerusalem is one of the few episodes of Jesus' life, apart from his death and the empty tomb, that are in all four of the gospel accounts. But each gospel writer uses the common elements of the eyewitness testimony to bring out the particular point that they're making in their gospel accounts. So it's common when we look at this uh, passage to focus on the donkey aspect of the proceedings. You know, it's often said... When the U.S. president, for example, enters town, he travels in a car which is known as the Beast. It's complete with bulletproof windows, rocket-propelled grenades, samples of the president's own blood and the ability to drive at 70 miles an hour even when all the tyres have been burst. I'm sure our friends at the American Embassy can... uh, can falsify or verify those, those claims. I just got them out of the newspaper. But Jesus enters town not on a war horse, 
or in a limousine, but a donkey or a small young horse. And you can imagine his feet almost touching the ground as he travelled. And Matthew and John explicitly reference the prophecy in, in Zechariah, which speaks of the Messiah entering Jerusalem in this way. But here's the thing. Luke doesn't. His interest, Luke's interest, isn't really the donkey or the colt, as he calls it. Do you, do you notice what's striking about the way that he tells this story? He tells it twice. Now, the other gospel writers don't do this. He, he wants to draw attention to Jesus telling his disciples to go and enter the village and find the colt, which no one has ever ridden, to untie it and bring it here. And if they ask you why, they are, why you're untying the colt, tell them the Lord needs it. And then, do you see... They find it exactly as he says, Luke tells us, and the owners ask him, why are you untying the colt? And they say, the Lord needs it. Now, we presume Jesus had some kind of arrangement with the owners rather than that he's just nicking it on the day. But the point is, Luke is ramming home. Jesus is Lord of the details. He's totally in charge as he heads into Jerusalem. In, in chapter 9, Luke tells us Jesus set his face towards Jerusalem. This has been his destination ever since then, where he must suffer and die. Jesus' death isn't something that happens to him against his will. It's something he willingly chooses and is in charge of. And we will see on Good Friday, at the point when he dies, he says, Into your hands, Lord, I commit my spirit. Even his death is an act of his will. Now, one of the things many of us struggle with in these days of self-isolation and social or physical distancing and homeschooling or homeworking, stressful times at work, in these days, we obviously, we struggle with things feeling out of control. And it may be the little things of everyday life with routines out of the window and no idea what's happening next. Or it may be big things, job worries, health worries, and in the, the days or, and weeks to come, even fear of death itself, even or, or, or grief for those that we've lost. And if anything is going to teach us that we're not in control, surely it is these current circumstances that we're in. But here, here do you see, here is the king who is in control. And maybe we're used to speaking of a sovereign God and affirming that he's in charge. And maybe, deep down, that isn't always a comfort because we fear that him being in charge means he's going to make life very difficult for us. And we don't want that. But it's worth seeing exactly what Jesus is in charge of as sovereign king. What he's using his sovereignty for. He's not using it for his own advantage. He's using it to arrange his own suffering and death. To ensure that he enters Jerusalem where he knows he will be killed. Where he will die a death in the place of sinners. In other words, he's using his sovereignty for the good of his people. Can you see that? And when we struggle with our circumstances, with the particular way that God is providentially leading us in our lives, we need to remember this. Jesus is our sovereign king. He's Lord of the details for the good of his people. Do we believe that? It's only knowing that that will sustain us when suffering comes. So what kind of king is Jesus? He's a sovereign king. And then secondly, from verses 35 to 38, he's a saving king. Now what comes next is the crowd's welcome 
Jesus, superficially at least, as their saviour king. And as Jesus travels, they give him the equivalent of the red carpet treatment. They throw their cloaks on the ground and on the colt. And in 2 Kings 9.13, the same treatment is given to King Jehu. This is a royal welcome. And along with their red carpet treatment, they praise God for the miracles they've seen. Verse 37. Remember, the miracles Jesus did are signposts to his identity. They prove that he is God's king. God himself come to earth as man. And they chant quotes from Psalm 118 that we heard. So, uh, that Hannah read for us, Psalm 118. Here it is in verse 38. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. And that Psalm 118 is about the coming Messiah, who comes to rescue his people. Now, when we do the course Christianity Explored with people, there are three key questions that we keep returning to. The first question is, who is Jesus? And these guys, you see, they can tick that box. They, they, they've done session two in Christianity Explored, which looks at Jesus' miracles, and they jo- they, they've drawn the logical conclusion. This is God's promised Messiah King. Okay, so they've got that. And the next question is, why did he come? And on the surface of things, they've got that too. He's come to save. They know that. That's what their singing means. Well, the third question is where they really start to come unstuck. What does it mean to follow him? But the thing is, you can't answer that third question until you are clear, really clear, on who he is and why he came. And the question for the enthusiastic crowds is, do you really understand those two things, who he is and why he came? Because fast forward less than a week and all these crowds will have fallen silent. Even his closest disciples in the end will desert him. By the time he arrives at the cross to save his people through his death, he will be utterly alone. Now, if you were in the crowd that day, the question to think about might be this. Is Jesus really my King and my Lord as I sing and chant so happily with my lips today? Or is he to me more like a kind of spiritual business consultant? Someone to be called in to solve problems in a crisis, but not the boss. The difference between a boss and a business consultant is the terms on which they operate. And no doubt business consultants can change a lot of things for better or worse, but they are always limited by a contract. They always work by invitation. The boss, with a business consultant, the boss is still the boss. And what they say is what matters in the end. For many people, Jesus, you see, is in that kind of consultant category. I'll call on him when I need him, but it's on my terms. Now, if the idea of a business consultant leaves you cold, what about a cleaner? Someone might say they found the best cleaner the world has ever seen. So reliable, so efficient, so brilliant at their job. They'll never look elsewhere. Well, you want your cleaner to clean. But the idea of letting your cleaner run your life is ridiculous. Jesus is a saving king. But for as long as we see that, you know, just on our own terms, like the crowds on Palm Sunday, as long as we see him just a sort of contracted in for crises, coronavirus or otherwise, or we're going to miss the point. And that's because however serious the present situation is, it's only a picture of the even deeper seriousness of our sin, which has eternal consequences. It's been emphasised that we must act to save the NHS. 
because the NHS is what will save us. Now, we should thank God for the NHS, and we should listen to our national leaders and do what they ask. But there is only one saviour from eternal death. And that is what Jesus comes to in the final verses. The reason all this matters so much is the third thing we see about uh, King, this King of Kings, Jesus, in these uh, verses. So, so thirdly, from verses 39 to 44, a dividing king. Not everyone watching is happy with what they see. The Pharisees say to Jesus, don't let them say that sort of thing. It's ridiculous. Tell them off. They're probably thinking of the importance of keeping the peace with the Romans. If this gets out of hand, everything they've worked for will be ruined. And yet it's remarkable because just before this, Jesus has told a story about people who don't want their rightful king to rule over them. Look back at verse 14. Do you see that? And verse 27. We don't want this man to be our king. They've heard Jesus tell this story where where he includes these lines. They've heard what happens at the end of verse 27 because those people who don't want Jesus to be their king in that story, they get brought out and they get killed. But these people listening to the story are pressing on regardless. So Jesus says, I tell you, if they keep quiet, even the, the, the stones will cry out. In other words, even lifeless objects can see when real life when it comes. Yet those who seem to be alive are proving to be spiritually dead. And then there's a stark warning in the final paragraph. It comes with tears. Jesus doesn't say this lightly. Jesus, the saving king, has come to bring peace, verse 42. Peace is available, but the consequences of rejecting it are deadly serious. The events Jesus describes and predicts in verses 43 and 44 eventually came true in AD 70 when the Romans came and besieged Jerusalem and destroyed the temple. You see, Jesus is like a lighthouse. He's saying there is danger ahead if you don't divert your course right now. Now, lighthouses, if you think about it, they aren't built out of hatred. They aren't built out of fear. They're built out of love because it's loving to warn a ship of deadly consequences of the rocks. But the consequences of not seeing what kind of king Jesus is, is like ignoring the lighthouse and pressing on regardless. And when that happens, the consequences are deadly. So Jesus is a dividing king because in the end, all human beings will divide into those who accept him as their king and those who continue to refuse to do so to their own destruction. And no, just... Just note, not only does Jesus say this with tears, but the death that he's sovereignly arranging for the good of his people will involve taking this kind of judgment that he speaks of in verses 43 and 44 on his own shoulders. In fact, it will be far worse because he will suffer the full weight of the judgment of God deserved by sinners so that those who trust him don't have to face it ourselves. Now, we'll see more of that on Good Friday. But as we approach Good Friday and Easter Day beyond, let's be in no doubt the peace and security that Jesus offers us as God's King will not come on our terms, but on his. If we're following Jesus because we want him to do what's on our agenda, our to-do list for our lives, and we think he might be able to help with those things, Well, being like the crowds who thought freedom from Roman slavery was the only thing they needed, 
and the only thing worth having. If we're following Jesus because he's a useful appendage, a useful consultant when things are difficult, we're going to be disappointed. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who died in a concentration camp because he followed Jesus, he, he wrote that when Christ calls someone, he bids them come and die. Once the crowds and even Jesus' closest friends realised that following him meant following him to the cross, they dispersed. They were afraid. They went away silent. It frightened them off. And it's just possible that this season that we're in now may have a similar effect if things get even more difficult, if that is possible. And again, if we're just following Jesus because we expect him to make life happy and pain-free, we may well find that assumption deeply challenged. But this is a king we can trust. He's utterly in control, he's sovereign, but we can trust him to use that sovereignty for the good of his people, just as we see him doing here. He's come to save, not from our current circumstances, but from an even deeper, far more serious problem, the judgment we deserve. And he's come to divide human beings in the end into two groups, those who follow him on his terms and receive the peace that he longs to give us, and those who press on regardless to their own destruction. So will we follow him to the cross, denying ourselves, trusting him with our, our whole lives, knowing that on the other side of Good Friday is the sure and certain hope of Eastern Sun Easter Sunday, resurrection and glory with our sovereign, saving, dividing King. Let me pray now. Father, we pray that, as we've heard this morning, Jesus is our sovereign, saving, dividing King. We pray that our response would be to trust him, not just for our current circumstances, but for our whole lives, our whole eternity. Thank you that he uses his sovereignty for our good. Thank you that um, he, he came into the world to save. Thank you that he offers us peace. Pray for us all to receive that peace, and especially for anyone who's yet to do that. They'd receive it as a free gift today. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.